Welcome to the Variety Hour, where local leaders talk Memphis. Listen to you, move your mouth. I bet you come from way down south. Now don't tell me, let me guess. You from the town that I love best. Talk Memphis, I wish you would. Talk Memphis, you sound so good. Talk Memphis, high on the bluff. I swear I can't get enough. Listening to you talk that stuff. Talk Memphis, oh yeah. Welcome to Talk Money. And now here's your host, Jim Shoemaker. And welcome to today's program. If you had a batting average of 350 in baseball, just how good would you be? What about a batting average of 500? Well, I think you'd probably be a pro and you'd be receiving a big bonus. And my guest today has a batting average of over 900. Now, he doesn't play for the Cubs or the Cardinals, but he is good. He is in the investment business. He is Bob Dahl, Senior Portfolio Manager and Chief Equity Strategist for Nuveen. And we're going to discuss not his stock-picking ability, even though that would be impressive, but we are going to get a chance to hear firsthand his 2020 predictions pertaining to his investment perspective and the market outlook. I want to ask him what he thinks about the what was his biggest surprise for 2019 and what does he think he'll be his biggest surprise for 2020. In the second half of the program, Scott Jordan and Drew Johnson are going to help us understand some very popular misconceptions about bonds. Put all this together and you've got a packed program. You will definitely want to stay with us. From our Did You Know files in 2020, and this is, everybody knows this, it's an election year. Of course, I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know. From data, you know, the debates to rallies, election years are always exciting. And this year, 2020, is no exception. It is the fourth year of Donald Trump's first four-year presidential term. So here is some data that I believe you will find some thought-provoking. I did, at least, as I went through this. The S&P 500 has been positive on a total return basis during 19 of the last 23 presidential fourth years. That is, four, the fourth years dating back to 1928, including 17 of the last 19 have been positive. The average performance for the S&P 500 during the last 23 presidential fourth years has been a gain of 9.8%. I think I'm going to ask Bob Dahl, does he think the S&P 500 will be uh, what is, what I wonder he thinks it'll be in 2020. I bet I can get that prediction from him. The Treasury Department just released some information. The Treasury Department says that they had their Treasury bonds, the market, was open 250 trading days in calendar year 2019, during which the government sold, you ready for this, $2.55 trillion of notes and bonds, a total of $10.2 billion per year. No. Per month. No. $10.2 billion per day. <laughs> I didn't check to see if that was a record, but that's not a bad sales year. you got to give them credit. Bottom line. If you have questions for Talk Money, send them to Talk Money at Shoemaker Financial. To find today's program on podcast or past programs, go to the iTunes store and search for Shoemaker Financial. And be sure to like us on Facebook. Coming up, Bob Dahl. 2020 predictions and Scott Jordan and Drew Johnson. Are bonds risky? That's a misconception. We'll find out. You're listening to The Voice, KWAM 990 and FM 107.9. I'm Jim Shoemaker, and this is Talk Money.
Podcasts of Talk Money are available in the iTunes store. Just search Shoemaker Financial. We'll be right back with more Talk Money after this. Neither Securian Financial Services, Inc. nor Shoemaker Financial are affiliated with Bob Dahl or Nuveen. The views and opinions expressed are those of Bob Dahl only and have not been presented on behalf of or endorsed by Securian Financial Services, Inc. or Shoemaker Financial. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. Well, it is always a pleasure to have this guest on the air with us because not only is he a tremendous asset to the investment industry, he's a dear friend and a guy that I highly respect because he is wise and has a batting average, as I said in the monologue, of over 900. So he could play for the Cards or the Cubs, but I've watched him play, and, uh, you know, I don't think it'll be in baseball anytime soon. He's in the investment business, and he does a great job. He is Chief Equity Strategist and Senior Portfolio Manager. Welcome to the show, Bob. Thank you, sir. Happy New Year, Jim. Happy New Year to you. Now, you know, I was picking on you just saying about the baseball. You probably were a great athlete years ago. Oh, I'm a great athlete when it comes to sitting watching the game. (laughs) I hear you. (laughs) Uh, My first question for you, and I know I've got you on the West Coast, so thank you, sir, for being up early this morning. I appreciate that. I know you're out busy and running and doing the things you do so well. But let's talk about this theme of 2019 before we get into your 2020 predictions. You talked about choppy, and you said frustrating, and you said no recession. That was your theme for 2019. I understand the choppy and the no recession. I can't say that I was too frustrated with 2019. Your thoughts? I would agree. We uh, we underestimated how strong the market would be. We expected a good up year, but the market returned more than double, we thought. As you know, the S&P 500 total returned 31.5%, Jim, uh, one of the best years in history. Yeah, that's uh, that's amazing. What would you credit to what What caused that, in your opinion? Yeah, a lot of things. I'd say, one, the uh, amazing amount of liquidity provided by central banks led by the U.S. Fed uh, during the course of the whole year. And then secondly, remember, we got crushed in the fourth quarter of 2018. More than half the gain in 19 was picking up what we lost in the fourth quarter of 18. All right. That's, uh, that gives us the insights. Now, I want to dive in as quickly as possible because this is why I think I just enjoy listening to this from you. You always do this, and again, it's the 2020 predictions, and this time your theme is uncertainties diminish, but markets struggle. Help us through that initial thought with that, and then let's start with what's your first prediction. What's the reason for saying markets struggle? The struggle comes from the fact that we were up over 30% last year, that stocks on a valuation basis are selling at almost the highest they've ever sold. According to most measures, the only time the stock market's been more expensive was at the top of the tech bubble in the year 2000. So a lot of good news is baked in. Thankfully, we are getting good news. But the question is, is the stock market discounting much of that good news? So we think stocks will be up this year, but uh, nothing like last year. All right, let's start with your first prediction. It is that the world avoids a recession, and U.S. GDP is over 2%, and global GDP is over 3%. Uh, People that are close to the markets know that those numbers are good. They're not great. We're not going to set any records, but the economy is just fine. Importantly, the long-anticipated, much-discussed, feared recession, there are no signs of it, uh, Jim, and that's the good news. 
Uh, we think the economy will be okay, led by the U.S. consumer. Let's hope we get some better news out of manufacturing and non-U.S. economies. One thing we know is while this is the longest cycle in U.S. history, uh, it does not mean it's about to end because it's old. Uh, bull markets and economic cycles do not die of old age. They have to be killed by somebody. Yeah, that's a great point. I know you talk about in your prediction that's number two. You talk about the fact, I mean, the whole idea behind the inflation and the 10-year Treasury. You know, the yield, but the whole thing is looking above 2% as the Fed stays on hold. So you're actually saying through the election, we're not going to see any interest rates going up. We think from the Fed standpoint, that's probably the case. They uh, And their last uh, pronouncement when they finally lowered rates for the third time said the hurdle rate from here for more change has is, is gone up a lot. So I think the Fed will attempt to twiddle their thumbs and uh, watch the data. Uh, inflation and 10-year Treasury yields have been in the high ones for some time, meaning between one5 and 2%. Our guess is we'll end the year and we'll be in the low twos. So up a tick or two, still low interest rates, still low inflation, but heading in a direction that will get people's attention. Bob, do you think that we've just gotten so accustomed to these low interest rates that we just have no, I mean, the thought process, we just don't want high interest rates, and that would be a major a major downfall of the market if that were to occur? Is that just kind of where we are? Yes, I think that I think that uh, uh, the world is expecting interest rates and inflation to stay low for the foreseeable future, and it probably will. And our only point, this subtle uh, uptick um, to the low twos from the high ones, is just, hey, they're not going to be zero forever is kind of the point. Yeah, I got you. That's a great point. Well, okay, rising wage, and you talk about that in your prediction number three. You're saying earnings fall short of expectations, and you talk about that simply because you're saying partially due to rising wage rates. That's a real fact. Now, tell me, tell me what you're seeing with that particular prediction. Yeah, so, so the consensus earnings guess for this year is up 9%. We're guessing up 5 or 6 So a little bit of a shortfall, and that wage rate. So as you know, I spend most of my time as a portfolio manager picking stocks and creating portfolios. So my team and I, we talk to a lot of CEOs. And one of their common complaints is, I can't find workers. Mm. A year ago, it was I couldn't find skilled workers. Now it's plain, I can't find workers. And if I need somebody, I've got to go hire them from the competition, which means I have to pay up to, to get them. And that has a, a bad effect on profit margins. Not going to kill us, but uh, at the edge, it's uh, a little bit of a negative. You know, one of the predictions that I, I, when I first read it, I have to admit, number four is just kind of, I mean, I, wow, I thought, well, this is amazing. You say stocks, bonds, and cash all return less than 5% for only the fourth time in 25 years. That's a prediction. I need an explanation of that. Tell me what you're thinking. <laughs> so so this is the predi- this is our riskiest prediction, in my view. It's also the prediction I hope I get wrong. So, cat, let's take them one at a time. Cash. Cash is obviously not going to return more than 5% this year. We got that one right. Bonds. I've just argued that interest rates are going to tick up a little bit, which means it's probably a coupon minus year. So bond portfolios won't see 5%. That leaves the stock market. Valuation levels, the PE on the stock market is almost 20 times. 
It's never been above there except in the tech bubble. So to try to argue or make the – should I convince you to buy stocks because evaluation levels goes, goes up is, is I think, uh, a low probability event. And I just made the comment earnings are going to be okay, but maybe a little short of expectations. That's a year where stocks are going to churn and probably not have a big gain. Okay, that makes sense. And I, I think that I can follow what you're saying. I guess that's the thought. And if you just tuned in, my guest is Bob Dahl. He is the chief equity, equity strategist and senior portfolio manager for Nuveen. And we're talking about his famous, I like that, famous 2020, 10, the 2020, this 10 predictions. Bob, how long have you been doing this, the 10 predictions? Uh, you know, you kind of lost track. This was either year 29 or 30. We're not 100% sure. So a long time. <laughs> so so you have a lot of experience. Tell us just briefly at this point, how do you do this? I mean, I know you don't get up in one morning and get your crystal ball out and do that. There's a lot of work that goes into these 10 predictions. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I start thinking, uh, you know, about uh, late October. Oh, my goodness, in six, eight weeks, i got to do this. So I start making notes. I start ripping pieces of research out that I've read, circle things. And by the second week in December, I've cu- accumulated a pile of several inches. I tell my assistant, one week, no appointments, not going anywhere, no phone calls, and I literally come in the office, put a towel over my head, uh, and make piles, the earnings pile, the economic pile, the political pile, and then try to make sense out of all and say, what do I think, and can I live with the prediction for a whole year? A whole year. Right. <laughs> that's, pro- that's the hard part. Ah, that's great. I, you know, and I could just, now i got to get this mental image of the office, the towel over the head. I got it. I got it. It. Non-U.S. stocks outpace U.S. stocks as the dollar retreats. That's number five. Yeah, you know, the uh, the U.S. stock market has led the way for a number of years. A lot of people have uh, falsely argued or prematurely argued non-U.S. would do better. Our argument is pretty simple. The U.S. has had major advantages over the rest of the world. But... In 2020, we think we will see slightly better economic growth improvement outside the U.S. than inside. We also think that uh, because we're running big current account budget and trade deficits, that's usually the recipe for currency that has some weakness. So they're the catalysts. Valuation comes in, too. P.E. is outside the U.S., 14. Inside the U.S., over 19. That gap is the widest we've ever seen. Wow. Cheap things, as you and I both know, Jim, is not a reason to buy something because cheap can stay cheap or get cheaper. But if you have the catalyst and the cheapness, you got a chance. That's why we think having spent almost a decade having 100% of our money in the U.S., doing some dollar cost averaging out of the U.S. is probably acceptable now. That makes sense. That's a good, that's a great point. I think you, I, I like that, what you're saying. You talk about value and cyclicals outperform growth and defensive stocks. Now, that's, I looked at that when I read that. I thought, okay, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get my head around that. But value and cyclicals outperforming growth? I, you know, help me with that because that's that's a shift in the mindset in the past. Exactly. Uh, the point of this and the next prediction, just to put it in context, is if, if stocks are going to aren't going to do a lot for us, it's not just buy them and own them and ride the wave. We got to be careful about what we own and what we don't own in a year where returns are lower. We have been in an environment that's lasted years where growth. Stocks have beaten value stocks. Around Labor Day of last year, a switch occurred. 
Um, growth stocks have done fine since Labor Day, but value stocks have done even better. Example, within technology, software was a killer uh, sector in 2019. You needed to own it. But since Labor Day, it's up. But semiconductors are up more. Semiconductors are value in cyclicals, software growth and defensive. Do you see the point? Yeah, I get that. So you're really tying six and seven almost together as you're talking about financials, technology, and healthcare outperforming utilities, real estate, and consumer. All that kind of you. Well, here's I guess it ties into your number eight predictions because you're saying you got to you got to pay attention. Act, you're saying active equity managers outperform their indexes for the first time in a decade. That's a big prediction. We've had a long string, as you well know, of yes. years where index funds have just taken uh, the, the, the active manager to the cleaners, if you will. And our uh, guess is that the stars are lining up. The, the, the index phenomenon is a cyclical issue, not a secular one. Uh, there are there are factors when they occur that active managers tend to be able to beat their indexes. They are small stocks beat big stocks, non-U.S. beats U.S., equity returns are more muted, value beats growth, correlations are low, the economy is okay, interest rates uh, tick up a bit. When those things happen, and no, two, no, no three of them have happened in any one of the last 10 years, we think most of them will happen, and therefore active managers stand a better chance beating that index. Wow, that's um, that's good news, though, because I, I really think that the value that the active manager brings, and you're talking about, is that ability to look at value cyclicals and financials, technology, and healthcare, and, and move in that direction as they need to. That's what you're saying, if their sector will allow exactly. them. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, I guess when we think about it, everybody's got it on our minds. Geopolitical, you know, the whole idea. Uh, what's your thoughts there? I kind of want to tie that into number nine, the Cold Wars with the U.S., between the U.S. and China. And then I, I want to throw in the idea of the geopolitical thoughts. Now, you're predicting the Cold Wars within the U.S. and, and between the U.S. and China continue. You're saying that's not going to change, right? Correct. Uh, the Cold War with China perhaps is obvious to, to our listeners. It uh, manifests itself self in all the trade issues of 2019. Um, curiously, we're about to sign phase one. But that's all it is, phase one, a small piece of what needs to be done. But think about your favorite sport. Um, when the number one and number two team play each other, there's el- extra electricity in the stadium, right? Yes. That's what this is. The U.S. and China are number one and number two, and they're going to duke it out, hopefully not literally. Uh, and some days it's friendly, and some days it's unfriendly. That's what this is going to go on for years and years. We are in a cold war with China. Let's hope it doesn't become a, a, a hot war. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So you're saying your prediction, cold wars within the U.S. and between the U.S. and China will continue. And you're saying not just, you're really looking at not just 2020, you're saying it could go on further than that. And that makes sense. Correct. This could last years. Okay. And, and the one inside the U.S. has many dimensions. The political divide among us, uh, the fact that life expectancy in the U.S. has dropped three years in a row. Um, that's not happened in our lifetimes. Uh, the causes of that, significant increases in suicides, in uh, uh, drug overdose-related uh, deaths and alcoholism, the gap between the haves and the have-nots. Here's a stat for you. In 1980, the average CEO made 32 times what the average employee in his or her company earned. Today, that number is not 32 times. 
278 times. So this have-have-not divide has only increased. And to add to this, for the first time in history, Jim, a a significant demographic cohort, namely 18- to 29-year-olds, think socialism is a better form of economy than capitalism. Put all these things together, you know, underneath the surface, the the U.S. has some issues to deal with. Big issues, big issues. Well, that brings me to number 10. Now, you, I'm going to pick on you a little bit, because you you say U.S. concludes a tumultuous political year with a status quo election. You can't call this election status quo. Help me with that. I mean, I, I read that. Yep, I thought, status quo? <laughs> status quo? Did status Bob like that? Obvious. No, status quo is obvious. Yes. Democrats retain the House, the Republicans retain the Senate, and Trump gets reelected. That's a status quo election. That's our prediction. Obviously, who knows if that'll be the case. On the presidency, the most important determinants of a first-term president seeking a tech- second term are, number one, is he challenged for in his own party in a significant way? And the answer in this case is no. The second question is, does he face a recession? And our guess is by November there won't be a recession. When you answer those two questions, no, the incumbent president is almost re- always reelected. So so that's an easy prediction from your standpoint. I, I appreciate that. Those two, it's those two things. to make, whether we'll get it right, that's a whole well, other story. Well, yeah, that's a whole other story. Bob, let me ask you this. I mean, I, 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 when this happened two weeks ago with the Middle East and Iran, did you see, tell me what your thought concerns are about Iran, the Middle East, that geopolitical problems from an investment standpoint, from your chair, how do you look at that? Not dealing with the 10 predictions, but just your thoughts on the, a geopolitical problem. Yeah, if I made a list of positives and negatives for the markets, which I have, on my negative list is a significant number of geopolitical issues that are not predictable and they're not manageable. For the Middle East and Iran in particular, we know there's been a skirmish between the U.S. and Iran for a long time, and that's going to continue. Uh, I I think that... uh, uh, the temperature was raised with the assassination and the retaliation. And uh, I, look, Iran's not, they're not dummies that run that country. They know that they don't want to get in a war with the U.S. because they can't win. Uh, and so uh, they'll be festering and they'll be picking at the scab, if you will, and noise here and there. And um, it's it's going to go on for some time, but uh, we got to figure out how to get along with each other. The good news is even right on through all that visible stuff, there are negotiations going on between the U.S. and Iran to try to figure out how to get along better. Well, that's true. There's got to be some things there. That's a great point. Let me ask you this as we kind of come to a close here. We've been talking with Bob Dahl. He is the chief investment strategist, equity strategist, and senior portfolio manager for Nuveen. We're talking about his 2020 10 predictions, which he's been doing for almost 30 years. And this year, the theme is uncertainties diminish, but markets struggle. If you, you know, it's just powerful information, Bob, and you always do a great job with this. But I have a question for you. The consumer at this point, it looks like the numbers for retail sales in the third quarter, fourth quarter during the Christmas season, the holiday season is enormous. Now, is that an indication that the consumer is very comfortable right now? Is it also the fact that they're seeing their wages go up? I mean, the consumer runs this country, whether we like it or not. They are the the buying power of the consumer makes things happen. Your thoughts? Yes, you might even say the U.S. consumer has carried the world on its back. Wow, Most good. non-U.S. economies, the manufacturing economy has been iffy at best. 
the U.S. consumer in great shape. Four reasons. One, the number of us working. Two, the number of new jobs that get added every month, 140,000, the most recent report. Three, the fact that wage growth is a respectable 3% year over year. And four, which doesn't get a lot of attention, the U.S. consumer has a savings rate of a whopping 8%. Usually, as a business cycle matures, the consumer is spending a lot of money because they think the cycle is going to last forever. Uh, But consumers are being prudent and, and cautious, which is keeping the economy slow, but nevertheless moving forward. Well, that's great information. With me in the studio is Drew Johnson and Scott Jordan from our investment group. And I wanted, uh, Scott, I know you have a question for Bob. So, uh, Bob, here, here's a question that, that really I think Scott's going to ask it. The key is we're still looking at this uncertainties diminish, but markets struggle. Go ahead, Scott. Yeah, Bob. Uh, good morning. Uh, I had, I've, you know, you've mentioned a lot about this, but historically, you know, with recession fears always popping up. I mean, we've heard it said a lot. This has been one of the most unbelieved and untrusted bull markets in history. Uh, you kind of talked a little about P ratios being slightly elevated. And, and when we think of recession, there's usually sort, some sort of excess or imbalance that appears and then maybe some catalyst that causes it to tip over the edge whether that's fed tightening or something like that do you see any signs of excesses or imbalances that are really concerning to you right now virtually none look is the world perfect are there some little excesses here and there yes but the signs of recession to say another way's got there aren't any all this talk about recession, when we had the inverted yield curve for uh, a few months by a little bit, even that straightened itself out. So, no, we do not see a recession uh, anywhere on the uh, horizon. We have said for three years now that we're going to have a recession again, and when pinned down, we've answered 2021, because most recessions start in the first year of a presidential term. The closer we get to it, Scott, the more I think I'm too early, not too late in calling for a recession. You know, wow. that's something. That's a great question, Scott, because that is amazing. You know, Australia has got a great history of an over 20-year economic growth period, a bull market. So we could look at that. Why do we have to say they have to run 10 years and then fall apart? You're telling us that there's just no indication of a recession for 2020. And I heard you almost say that even looking further out, there's not something today. Great thoughts from you, Bob. I always appreciate having you on the program, sir. Uh, Any last closing remarks for me that you would like to just say, this is 2020? What's your thoughts? Yeah, buy, buy, don't ever forget to buy low and sell high. That will keep you out of a lot of trouble. <laughs> I got, um, I, got uh, it. I would say <laughs> the last 10 years, stocks in the U.S. went up 16% per annum. That's one of the strongest 10-year periods in history. When PEs are this high, 18, the subsequent 10-year return is averaged less than 1% per year. While not forecasting that, my guess is it's going to be closer to 1% than 16. We're going to have to do a lot more homework figuring out what to own and what to avoid within these markets, not just ride the wave. Wow. Thank you, sir. Bob Dahl, Senior Portfolio Manager and Chief Equity Strategist. 2020, 10 predictions, uncertainties diminish his theme, but markets struggle. Thank you, sir. You have a wonderful day for you. Thank you. Same to you all. All right, let me talk to you guys a question. Now, you just got, you know, in my opinion, a tremendous education. It's all of us got a tremendous education. What did you hear? Let's start with you, Drew. What did you hear from Bob as he's talking through his 10 predictions and that thought, just the idea? Oh, I mean, I would call it realistic optimism is what I would say. He sounds very upbeat about 
our prospects for the coming year. And I've listened to him. I've known him for a long time. And the reality is I'm not new to the 10 predictions, and he's not always optimistic. I mean, literally, I've heard him have to beat it up some. Back in 2007, 2008, uh, 10 predictions were pretty pretty rough. Drew, I mean, uh, not Drew Scott. I think it's I think it's similar. Uh, you know, I, I did hear a lot of optimism in what he's saying, but I also kind of the temper those expectations with uh, we've had a good run up. Let's not expect to stay on that same trajectory. We got to be a little more careful about what we're owning and what we're going to pick. You know, so. when he talked about the fact that the non-U.S. stocks outpace U.S. stocks, I, I, that was something we've all been kind of expecting that and thinking through that. And then when he literally says that, uh, you know, stocks, bonds, and cash all return less than 5%. I, <laughs> but I appreciated his answer. I yeah. appreciate what he's thinking. And again, a prediction he says very quickly, I hope this one's not correct. <laughs> you know, He <laughs> just kind of lays that one out there. Well, if you just tuned in, my guest has been Bob Dahl. We've been talking about 10 predictions, 2020, uncertainties diminish, but markets struggle. You'll want to listen to that program, so you can go to the iTunes store, or go to KWAM, just click on the ability to listen on the iPod, and, and, and just go listen to it. I mean, it's a great program, great information for this guy. But coming up, you're going to find out what are some misconceptions when it comes to the bond market. I mean, is it risky? Well, I got two guys in the office today here at the office, the studio office, and they're going to absolutely help us understand what are some, dis, you know, those absolute misconceptions that we all have about bonds. Stay with us. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Talk Money. If you have questions you'd like to have answered on the program, email them to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. We'll be right back with Talk Money after this. The millionaire Robert Reed Church, Memphis's most prominent business leader and philanthropist at the turn of the last century, was the product of an interracial union between a steamboat captain and an enslaved seamstress. During the Civil War, when he was forced to be a cabin steward on a union steamboat, Church married a former slave named Louisa Ares. After the war, the couple started a number of businesses that became a great source of wealth for the city as the years progressed. But their success did not come easily. During the race riot of 1866, Church was shot in his saloon and left for dead. But he recovered and resolved to remain in Memphis despite the violence. After surviving the yellow fever epidemic, Church used his own money to build the public park and auditorium on Bill Street, the first major urban recreational center in the nation to be owned by an African-American. The auditorium became a center of Memphis civic and cultural life. W.C. Handy was employed there for a time, and it was the site chosen for President Theodore Roosevelt's visit to Memphis in 1902. In 1906, Church founded the first African-American-owned bank in Memphis in the 20th century, and during the panic the next year, he avoided a run on his bank by placing bags of money in its windows to demonstrate that he had enough money to pay back his customers. Throughout his years in Memphis, Church was the most active philanthropist in the city. He not only purchased the first bonds issued by the city after it declared bankruptcy, but also saved local church property from being seized when he paid off their creditors. In a marvelous coincidence, Church died in 1912, the same year his former employee, W.C. Handy's hit song, Memphis Blues, was introduced to the world. 
This has been another Mid-South History Moment brought to you by Shoemaker Financial. Jim Shoemaker, Scott Jordan, and Drew Johnson are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Security and Financial Services, Inc. Securities dealer, member FNIRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. The S&P is an unmanaged index of 500 large cap stocks. Investors cannot invest in an index. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments will fluctuate and were redeemed may be worth more or less than when originally invested. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. Well, we've been talking with senior portfolio strategist and uh, chief equity strategist, senior portfolio manager, Bob Dahl of Nuveen. But the guest I have now is two very solid experts when it comes to thinking through this process of investing. They're on our investment committee, and they do a great job of putting things together for people like you and I who need that help to know how to invest in things. And so I've asked them to come in today and talk about the bonds. You know, there's three things we invest in. Ninety percent of us invest in bonds or debt. Let's call it debt. Equity which is a stock, or cash. So when we invest, we need to know that we've balanced that out, that we've thought about what our overall long-term plan, whether it's a two-year plan or a 10-year plan, and we try to balance that and making sure that we have the correct allocation based on our risk tolerance. We talk about that a lot on the show. And the key is it's so important to the balance of that so that you know. But here's the problem. So many times, I know I talk to a lot of people that simply say, Jim, I understand this, or I understand equities. Let's use that stocks, buying you know an equity in a company. I think I understand bonds. I think I buy debt in the company. They I loan them money, but I don't always completely grasp what's going on and is it safe? Well, if you look at 2019, obviously past performance is not an indication of future performance. But the bond market had a great year in 2019. But is it risky? Is it safe? Well. My guests today are going to help us go through that misconception that a lot of people you hear on the street, people will talk to you, and you ask them, hey, what do you think about bonds? Well, they're safe. Well, we need to make sure that we understand just exactly what safe is. Guys, Drew, Scott, welcome to the program. Great Thank you for having us, Jim. Let me start with you, Drew, because I, you know, what, let's start with this word safe. What is the word? When we, when we think of safe, give me kind of a, a way that you and I might talk in the, when using the word safe. Well, if we're talking about safe, we're talking about uh, is, it, is it volatile? Are the returns volatile? Uh, is it free from risk? Is it secure from loss? That's how we would talk about safe. So safe being that um, I can put it in and forget about it. Pretty much. All right. That makes sense. And I given the you know that definition, you know, would we ask the question, are bonds safe? Now let me ask you this. When I say bonds, I've said debt, but describe right. a bond for me. Well, it's a loan that consists of two parts, uh, the interest payment and then the final principal payment where you in theory get the money back that you originally loaned to the company or government or whoever you loan to. Okay, all right. So we've we've loaning money to a company. That's a bond. Safe is saying it's free from harm of risk or volatility. Now we put those two together. Here's the misconception: bonds are safe. Help me with that. Well, it's a it's a misconception for a number of reasons. Uh, all kinds of different entities issue bonds. It's not just something that the government does. Uh, corporations do it as well, so do cities and counties and states. And 
the riskiness of a bond has a lot to do with the creditworthiness of the one asking to uh, t- asking to receive the loan, the one borrowing the money. Just like an individual borrower has a credit score uh, when they go to ask for a loan, uh, companies have their own credit risk as well. And so the riskiness of the bond is going to be related to uh, the overall credit worthiness of the organization asking for the money. All right, that makes a lot of sense. Credit worthiness, Scott. What is what does he mean by credit worthiness? Well, you know, businesses as as well. Let's take a business for example. Um, they're they're getting cash flows from revenues from their business. How safe are those cash flows coming in? Because they use that revenue or those cash flows to repay those loans, to pay those interest payments and repay that principal. So how likely are they to receive that? And we have rating agencies out out there that help with that, Standard and Poor's and okay. Fitch, so they can place a rating on the bond to give you some idea. But uh, you have to do a lot more homework than just, just that. Just, just looking yeah. at what Standard and Poor's is given. So that's the AAA, AA, right. A, Triple right. B. And the Triple the A is, is less risk than the C. Correct. Okay. Correct. All right. I, I can figure that out. That's good. I got it. So if I'm buying a bond, I want to know what the credit worthiness is. In other words, am I willing to loan somebody? Is it major risk to loan something to some to a company or a, or a municipality even that doesn't have the ability? Yeah, and I think another thing that's important to note, and I saw an example of that this year, is those can change, by the way. It exactly. Can be, it can be AAA when you bought it, and, you know, those revenues have become a little more uncertain, and they can change. I had a client in the office, and he has a bond that was bought several years ago, as you'll tell by the yield, that was yielding 9%. But when we looked at his return through our software, it was only showing 7.8%. He said, how can that be? Well, could have been an interest rate increase, but we didn't have any of those last year, so it had to be a credit downgrade, mm. right? So, you know, this particular company had received a credit downgrade, so now those cash flows aren't quite worth as much. They're a little more risky than they used to be. Now, if he holds it to term, he should get all his money back. But. Well, that's a great question, Drew. I want to lead in with that because that's the risk. So so interest payments, are they safe? And in, in the sense that they, when I say, are they free from risk? And he's given us examples, so I'm assuming the answer is no. So help us with that. That's right. Well, I mean, in, a, in the first hour, Bob mentioned uh, just how stretched uh, stock valuations were uh, during the tech bubble, and that's a great example of that. There were a number of companies in the late 90s and early 2000s that, on the surface, looked like good companies, looked like profitable companies, uh, but then within a few years, they were they were bankrupt. And so anybody that had bought bonds in those companies and was expecting regular interest payments from those loans, well, that went away uh, once those companies went bankrupt. And so it's not just knowing what the creditworthiness of the company is at the time that you loan them the money or buy the bond, but it's keeping up with that throughout the life of that bond contract. All right, guys. And I think we're helping some people understand that you've got to know, obviously, number one, creditworthiness. And that's critical. All right, let me ask you this, Scott. If I'm going to if I'm going to buy an individual bond, I can find that out. I can do the research, right? Correct. Correct. But I'm going to buy a mutual fund. How does that work? Well, that's where you're kind of depending on the management team of the fund. I mean, it, it could be more of a passive index type fund that would basically just go out and buy the bond index. So you would own a a a, a fund that mimics that index, 
Or you have a, a manager that does a little more research, what we call an active manager, that's doing that bond research for you. So you're not you're not necessarily having to go and do the research on the individual bonds. They're they're doing that research for you and they're buying and selling within that fund to get you not only, you know, the interest payments but also maybe take some capital gains as as opportunities permit themselves. So I you know, there's pros and cons to both, obviously, but that that's kind of how that works. But Scott, I know this, not all mutual fund bond funds are created equal. Correct. How do you know? I mean, what do you do? I mean, here I am thinking about, you know, needing to have added to my portfolio a bond portfolio, and I know they're not always created equal. Can I have a, a, a bond portfolio of a, of a you know, a, a well-known uh, mutual fund company buying just junk? Absolutely. And that, that goes to looking at the, uh, you know, what, you know, every fund has a perspective that describes what their goals are. Uh, there are funds that are dedicated to buying that higher yielding stuff or what a lot of people used to refer to as junk. And that's not a bad thing. When when you want access to that risk, that's what you're looking for. But it's it's important to really look at the objectives of the fund and seeing what they're trying to do and what they're investing in. So if you're buying a mutual fund, know what the fund's trying to do. Know, Absolutely. Spend some energy some time, get an advisor, get you guys to help them understand what you're buying if you're going to be buying a particular mutual fund. Now, guys, let me, you know, those are things we have to talk about a lot of times, but here's a thought. I, you know, when you think about risk, and you were talking about risk and safe, Drew, when you talk about that, and yet every time we turn around, we talk about, you know, you can have a AAA rating that gets downgraded. Talk about a company, give me an example of somewhere where that happens, downgrades from, let's say, AAA 10 years ago, and all of a sudden it's in trouble and maybe even goes bankrupt. Talk about that for me. I'll tell you what, do this. Hold your thoughts. <laughs> Put a break on it just a second. Let's do this when we come back because this is so powerful for people to understand it can be a you know anybody can have a downturn or a problem so bonds aren't always as we try to say to everybody safe and i want you to give us an example of, of a company don't have to tell me the company but where that's actually happened and how the how that the investor was treated in that situation can you do us absolutely all right when we come back we're going to find out what drew's going to tell us about a scenario where the loss of interest and principal payments could actually happen that's not a good thing. You want to know what to do and how to approach it and be sensitive to it. I'm Jim Shoemaker, and you're listening to Talk Money. Podcasts for Talk Money are available for iOS mobile devices in the iTunes Store. Just search Shoemaker Financial. We'll be right back with Talk Money after this. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific point in time and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information is not investment advice or a recommendation. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. I'm talking with Drew Johnson and Scott Jordan from our investment committee. We're talking about the misconception of bonds and the whole idea of when you put together a portfolio, you're buying usually three different thoughts. You're buying a debt you know, side of your portfolio, an allocation, an equity side of your portfolio, a different allocation, and then cash. The reality is some people have this misconception that if I buy bonds, I am buying something that's safe, that it's, you know, it's like, like cash and bonds are the same. The reality is that's a misconception. These guys have done a great job of letting you know 
that bonds can get in trouble. You need to do a lot of research before you just buy an individual bond. What's its credit worthiness? Is the interest going to be paid? Can it be paid? Well, the reality is, as they've talked about, companies can become unprofitable from, you know, a potential wide reasons. I mean, it can be the economy or the economic crash of 2008, 2009. We saw a lot of companies get in trouble and they can either go bankrupt or be bought by another company. And they're just, you know, somebody who's more profitable buys them. And that's uh, that's what you have to be sensitive to. So either scenario could entail a loss of your interest payment or your principal payment to the person holding the bond. And that's something I want you to know is a possibility. Bonds have risk. And so I've asked Drew, if he would, before the break, to go through and just give us an example of what actually took place in 2009. Right. In 2009, a lot of different industries were really hit hard. One of them in particular, as many of us will remember, was the auto industry. Uh, one of the larger companies in that industry in the U.S. went through a, a major bankruptcy, and in the subsequent auctioning off of that company's assets, uh, the bondholders ended up receiving a 10% stake in the reorganized company. So they basically got 10 cents on the dollar is how that worked out, or a 90% loss if you think about it like that. And so that ended up being a very, very uh, risky uh, scenario where the risk played out uh, for a company that had been very highly rated just a few years before. And well, so it, it can go south very quickly. And it does go south. And so therefore, people who thought they were going to be getting the interest income from that particular company's bond, it stopped. Exactly. And so that's an issue that people need to consider when you're thinking about Bonds, is there a risk in buying bonds? And the thing to consider is, as well is that even if you're talking about a company where that doesn't happen, where they're, they're highly rated and they retain that high rating, because a bond contract is for a limited term, those interest payments are going to end no matter what. They're either going to end because something bad happened to the company or they're going to end because that term uh, ended. And so the solution there is if you want to continue to receive income – uh, you have to buy more bonds, and the risk that you run there is that you might be buying them for a lower interest rate, or the company's credit rating might be lower at that time. Uh, the the risks happen as they come. That's a great point. So I guess to summarize this, bonds are neither free from risk. You need to understand that they're they're not always going to protect the invest, investor from the loss of principal, nor are they going to protect an investor from the loss of future income. That's always an issue that we need to keep in mind. So the misconception, bonds are risk-free or are bonds risky? The answer is, yeah, you need to think about it. So let me ask you this. There is a misconception that bonds are an inflation hedge, Drew. What about that? Well, overall, you would think about it. It it, it It's one of those things where theory diverges from practice because the the rate of inflation does play a role in determining what the interest rate on a bond's issue is going to be. So you would think on the front end that it should be a hedge, but the problem is is that that rate is ultimately a guess. Uh, they're trying to guess what they think the rate of inflation is going to be when they assign that that interest rate to that bond. Uh, but if you you can look at it over history and you can see that the bond market often gets it wrong when it comes to trying to predict what inflation is going to be. 
And so even though in theory you would think it should be in practice, oftentimes it's really not the inflation hedge that you would think it should be. Great point. Drew, the great job doing this idea of helping us understand that. Scott, summarize for us. Well, you know, I think the, the summary I would take and you know, would hope people would take away from this is that there are risk in, in most of the investments that we invest in, and but there are techniques that you can use to try to lower or minimize some of that risk. I mean, we say this over and over again. We talk about asset allocation, how much you want to have in stocks, bonds, cash, diversification, you know, spread your assets out. And I think that's that's a key principle to keep in mind here. Now, sometimes that's either easier accomplished using a fund or a fund manager. If there's enough money there, you can do it with individual bonds. But I think diversification is the key, you know, by time period, geography, uh, different companies, different sectors, because, you know, just like the example from the auto sector in 09, you don't know what the future holds, and that's good wisdom to diversify. And then, of course, rebalancing that on, on, on a regular basis. basis. Yeah. I appreciate that. Guys, thanks so much for doing that. Thank you for doing the, being a part of the program. Of course, you've been listening, of course, to The Voice, KWAM 990 and FM 107.9. My guests have been Bob Dahl, Senior Portfolio Manager and Chief Equity Strategist with Nuveen, Scott Jordan, and Drew Johnson of Shoemaker Financial. If you have additional questions for Scott or Drew and would like to talk with them personally, give them a call at 757 757- 5757. Guys, you did a great job today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. We hope you've enjoyed today's program. And as always, thanks for listening. If you have questions for Talk Money, send them to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. We will definitely get them on the program. To find today's program on podcast or past programs, go to iTunes and search for Shoemaker Financial. Be sure to like us on Facebook. I appreciate it. I'm Jim Shoemaker, and you've been listening, of course, to... Talk Money. Talk Money is produced by Greg Ratliff. Guest and content coordination, Francis Fortner. Production assistant, Eleanor Moskovitz. Compliance officer, Tommy Armstrong. Mid-South History Moment, Rebecca Brazier and Drew Johnson. We'll see you next week on Talk Money. Jim Shoemaker, Scott Jordan, and Drew Johnson are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Security and Financial Services, Inc. Securities dealer, member F and IRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated.